Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. A couple weeks ago when we were out of town, we were driving around a city I'd never been to before, did not, did not know it, and kind of unfamiliar, and was laid out kind of in a weird way. I was having a hard time figuring out where I was, but I, I was confident listening to the GPS, and I'm taking it all in, and I'm watching, and I'm just turning and going wherever this thing told me to go, and, and I was confident that I was down in the southeast corner of this city, like it was, it was right on the water, and I was sure, I mean, I know exactly where we're at. We're down on the southeast corner, and it, we'd come to this intersection and found out that we were right back where we were, we were like staying, we're up in the, in the, in the northwest corner. And I'm like, how did I totally miss where I was? And I was listening so much just to the GPS that I'd lost sight of where I actually was and just had no idea where, where my location really was. You ever been there? Like you're like, I don't, I don't really know. And I've, I've had this happen when I'm driving without a GPS. Like you're driving along, you come up to a crossroads or you come up to an intersection or you come up even worse to a dead end and you're like, I don't, I don't, not only do I not know where I am, but I have no sense of direction as to where I'm supposed to go. In those moments, I would encourage you to flip a coin. <laughs> and so we'll do it right now. Okay, call it in the air. You ready? Call it. Oh, whoa, hey, did you see that? Like a ninja. Okay, you got to raise your hand. How many of you said tails? Raise your hand. You said tails. It was heads. Okay, so, um, so here's the deal. Don't do that. Don't do that when you're driving. Use a map. Use a GPS. Like, like, like prepare better than that. And don't do that when you're making decisions in life either. Look, my concern and why we're going through this series is that for some of us, we come to a crossroads. Some of us, it might even be a dead end where we're like, okay, now what do I do? What decision do I make? And in particular, we live in really challenging times, right? I mean, we live, we live in a crazy world. So when these things come our way and some things that maybe we've never faced before, we're not sure what to think about them. When we come to those times, what do we do? What direction do we go in? And that's why we're doing this series called Trending. We're talking about some trending topics, things that are happening in the world around us and how from a biblical perspective, we're to handle those things. We're, we're launching out of Acts chapter 15. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today. We're, we're just gonna read one, one quick passage from Acts 15. We're gonna spend most of our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, Acts chapter 15 tells the story of kind of the first big conference or convention that the church ever had. It was, it was uh, called the Council of Jerusalem, and the church came together because there was a bit of a dispute between the, the Jews out of the church in Jerusalem, some of them, and the Gentiles out of the church in Antioch to the north in an area called Syria, that they were, they were trying to figure out, and at the end of the day, if you were here last week, you know we told more about the backstory, but at the end of the day, it was really boiling down to just two big questions. Question number one that we consider in Acts chapter 15 is how is a person saved? Question number two, then how does a saved person live? First question, how is a person saved? What do, what do we mean by saved? How do we know that a person is right with God, that their sins have been forgiven? that they have hope, that they have a future, that they can have a confidence in where their life is gonna go. How do they know that they can one day go to heaven and deal with, and for a lot of us, this is a big word, how can they have forgiveness? How can they be saved? That was the first question. The answer to that question, and, 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 it, and it shows up in Acts chapter 15. You, if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to read it for yourself. It's pretty simple. A person is saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. God didn't make it difficult for us. He said, look, well, you may have heard this before. See, God so loved the world <laughs> that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, see, it's not because you earned it, it's because of God's mercy. It's not because you worked for it. It's because you, it's by faith. 
Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again so we could have life. And if you put your faith and your confidence in him, you can know him as your savior, which means the one who forgives you. You can know him as your Lord, which means the one who gives you purpose and meaning in life. He directs your life, and then you can be saved. A person is saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That was the first question. How's a person saved? Second question, though, is is where they go next in Acts chapter 15, and it's actually kind of what we're processing over the course of this series. First question is, how's a person saved? Second question, then how does a saved person live? If you've been saved, if God's changed your life, and in a world with all kinds of cultural challenges, which they had in the first century and what we have today, how then does a saved person live? So, so they, they made these determinations, this, this group of leaders, this council, and they wrote a letter to the church in Antioch, to these Gentile Christians, to tell them, this is how we answer question number two. And here, here's what they said, Acts chapter 15, verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And that's how they ended the letter. And, and to be honest, they, they list those four things. Uh, stay away from food polluted by idols and and then the blood and the, the strangled meat thing and the whole sexual morality thing. And to be honest, a lot of that is hard for us to understand because we're 2,000 years removed. But when we took a little bit of time last week to understand the culture, what we realized is that what they wrote in that letter wasn't just rules for people 2,000 years ago, but it gave us principles by which we can live our lives today. And in the same way that a GPS unit or, or GPS feature on your phone will give you guidance in the journey that you're taking physically, what we wanna do through this series is give you a GPS that you can use spiritually. That when you come to a crossroad, when you're making decisions, when, when you have to determine what way to go, what actions to take, what choices to make, you can use this as a gauge and as a guide to help you. So we looked at this and literally, we're, we're gonna refer to this GPS in this series as a compass for navigating the trending topics of our challenging times. This GPS is gonna to give to us a, a compass that's gonna help us to navigate the trending topics of our challenging times. The G, if, if we break down GPS, the G stands for God, the P stands for people, the S stands for self. Let me tag a question to each one of those to maybe help us think it through. The G for God, when you're making a decision, ask, does this glorify God? This, this decision, this action, does this glorify God? This is where we're gonna park today. We're gonna to unpack that one. The P stands for people, and we ask the question, does this encourage or discourage others? We'll look at that next week. The S stands for self, and it causes us to ask, does this cause me to be closer to or further away from God? And in two weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll make that very practical as we look at it. But today, we're gonna to look at, at this G about God. Does this glorify God? And why we think that, why we unpack this, is because they made this statement you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. 
Now, this, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but back in biblical times in the New Testament, you're talking about people who are in the Roman world. You've got Roman and Greek mythology. You've got people who are worshiping the emperor. You've got people who have all kinds of these pagan idols, whether they're statues that are man-made or they're worshiping nature or all these different things. There were all these different places and options that you could worship, but that's not, that's not the biblical way. They had these idols, but do you remember, there's this little thing in the Bible. Has anybody ever heard of the Ten Commandments? You heard of them, right? Here's the first two. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Does that mean God has some emotional difficulties? He's wrestling with jealousy. Does it mean he's got a self-esteem issue that he's trying to work out for eternity? No. What's he mean by jealous? He's saying, look, I made you. I created you to worship me. And any, anything else that you worship, any idol, anything that you create, anything you worship in, in the sea or on the land or in the heavens, anything else you give your affections to or your loyalty to or your energies to in worship it's not real and it's dead. And God says, I care too much about you to let you chase after idols. In just a few minutes, we'll, we'll read a portion of scripture from um, the, the letter that the apostle John wrote. It, 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 he wrote three different letters. It, the first one's called 1 John, catchy title, right? And, and, and in 1 John, he writes to them all about knowing True from false, what's counterfeit and what's real. And he writes to them about loving one another, about serving God. When he gets down to the end of this letter that he's writing to a church that he loves, he writes this letter, and it's interesting, of all the things that he could have said, of all the ways that he could have concluded, he wraps up his letter with this, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. He loves them. Look at what he calls them. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Guys, if you do anything, John says, make sure God's first in your life. Make sure you give him first place. And you might go, well, Chad, I don't, I don't worship an idol. I don't have any little carvings on my mantle. I don't, I don't, I don't give my allegiance to some creature or the stars. That's, that's not who I am. So what is an idol and why are we talking about idols? Because an idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The reason is because the, the issues that we read about, the, the challenges in our culture that we see in Acts 15 are mentioned repeatedly in scripture. In fact, the apostle Paul alone in, in 1 Corinthians, in Galatians, in Romans, in Ephesians, in, in, in Colossians, in 1 Thessalonians, he mentions and references these different cultural challenges in, in great detail in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, he goes into this. In fact, we'll go back to 1 Corinthians 10 next week as we look at that, that P and that GPS. But today I wanna go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because Paul is trying to say to the church in a city called Corinth that he's writing to, make sure God is first place in your life. And he does this really interesting thing because he's trying, to, he's trying to prove a point. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to say to them, 
Make sure God is first place in your life. And he's having the same thought, I believe, that I have oftentimes when I'm putting a sermon together. And I'm going, this is so important. I don't want them to miss it. I don't want to just say it and have it go over their heads. I need to say something that will get their attention. Because oftentimes, I get to a point in a sermon, and I'm trying to say something really important, and and people have a glazed over look. Look at your neighbor. It's the one they have right now. Like, that's, that's the look. And they have that glazed over look, and I'm like, how do I get their attention back? And Paul does what I do sometimes. He tells a story. He says, hey, guys, I I want you to see how important it is that God is first place in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says, if one story is good, four is better. He tells four quick stories. He was a long preacher, actually. We'll get to that later in Acts. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, you think I'm long. (laughs) Paul will show you a thing or two. Now, these things, Paul writes, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Here he tells these four quick stories. Number one, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual morality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. If you came to church to hear happy stories from the Bible, <laughs> sorry about you, we, uh, we're going a different direction. Because today, I don't want you to miss the destructiveness of idolatry. These, these four stories that Paul tells, he reaches way back into Israel's history back to Moses, leading the people out of captivity in in Egypt, and then the time they spent in the wilderness before they got to the promised land, he reaches way back, thousands of years into the story, and he brings it back up to be able to say to that church, here's some things I want you to see, because when you give your attention to idols, that is a dangerous thing. And you might read those stories, or you might hear those stories and go, what do they have to do with me in 2018? The, The principles are all the same. You know that the heart of people and what tempts us to put other things ahead of God really has not changed that much just because of thousands of years. People's hearts are still the same. So I want to look at these stories, and I want to give you very quickly three idols for you to avoid in your own life. And you might go, look, I don't have any idols in my life. I I don't worship anything other than God. I, I I don't have any weird kind of practices or hokey things that I do. But I want to show you that an idol is anything that takes God's place. Let's look at three idols to avoid. Here's the first one, number one. It's what I would call the plan B idol. It's what I would call the plan B idol. Have you ever had something that you said, this is plan A, and then when plan A doesn't work out, you decide to go with plan B? Gonna, gonna, gonna change things around? Sometimes that's the best thing you can do. It's not good with your faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse seven. Paul says, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. He's, he's not saying that phrase about eating and drinking there because it's bad for you to eat and drink. He's saying that because he's reminding them of, of the story he's, he's alluding to. It's a story that happens in, 
the book of Exodus chapter 32. It's an interesting story because Moses, who's, who's their leader, you might want to think of Moses like he's the president. Moses is the president. He's their leader. He goes up on a mountain because God is, is directly communicating the law for the people to Moses. It's where we get the Ten Commandments. It's a really important thing. But while Moses is up on the mountain, watch what happens. Exodus 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron. If Moses is the president, Aaron's the vice president. They gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, I love how they call him that. You know this uh, fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt? We don't know what's happened to him. The Moses, Moses and God, Aaron, that, that was our plan A, but he's not here and we're getting a little impatient. Anybody know anybody who gets a little impatient? <laughs> and because plan A is not working, let's, let's go to plan B. We're not giving up on plan A. I mean, plan A might still be a good thing, but, but we think maybe we ought to diversify a little bit. Maybe we'll switch it up a little bit. Let's, let's have plan A, but plan A's over there. How about we go with plan B, and instead of putting their trust fully in God, they decide to put their trust in something else. And if you know the rest of the story, you know they take all their jewelry, they melt it down, and they make a golden calf. Anybody remember that? The golden calf's plan B. If God's not gonna answer our prayers, maybe something else will. And they take something and they make it more important than God. And you might go, well, I, I, don't, I don't think I do that. You might be surprised in the way this looks. I think oftentimes we take good things. They're not bad things. They're actually things that God gives to us, that he's entrusted to us. But we put them in a place of such prominence in our lives that we push our faith and God and plan A out of the way. And we put our allegiance into plan B. It's not that they're bad things but too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. Anybody? <laughs> too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. The one that I, I feel very convicted of, it's painful actually to confess this, but the one that I feel like the Lord's really speaking to me about, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. Anybody heard of ice cream? <laughs> right? God made ice cream, I think, just for me. But breakfast, lunch, and dinner <laughs> might be a little too much. Too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. Let, let me put out, uh, point out a couple of things that could be a plan B in your life. Sometimes it's money, stuff, possessions, the things that we own. This is, it's not that those things are bad. In fact, I, I think um, sometimes we, we want to hear anything that has to do with wealth is a bad thing. And the truth is, I think God is, is, is able to, and at times he wants to entrust us with things to prosper us so that we can be used by him, that we can be a conduit for him. And I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is sometimes what we have in our money can become what we put our confidence in instead of putting our confidence in God. When our gifts become more important than the giver, that's idolatry. When our gifts become more important than the giver, that's idolatry. Let's take it a whole nother level. Let's say that you have something, money, time, an ability, uh, some kind of skill or a possession that you know you could give to somebody that's in need. You could help them out. You could step in and make a difference. And it's not just in your brain. You feel it in your spirit that God's like stirring something in you and God's saying it would be good for you to respond in this way. But you feel it and you're like, I don't really want to do that. I don't really want to practice biblical principles with my finances. I don't really want to go over and help that person with that. 
I really don't want to give to that person in need. And you push God out of the way in this thing, please know this, if we treasure our treasures so much that we fail to honor God with them, that is idolatry. When what we treasure is our treasures instead of the one who entrusted those treasures to us, that becomes idolatry. But man, it's not just a, it's not just a money thing. I mean, sometimes it can, it can be our callings, can be what we do, could be our jobs, it could be our professions, it could be our roles, it could be what's on our business cards. I know that for, for those of us that are in ministry, this, this happens real easily that at some point we hold so tightly to what we do that we fail to give glory to the one who put us in that place in the first place. And we start trying to and relying on our own strengths instead of relying on his. Anybody ever been overwhelmed at work? Anybody ever been in a place where your work becomes more than maybe what it should be in your life? And what can happen is at some point we can push God out of plan A and we can hold on to plan B. When we are doing what we do without the one who does it through us, that is idolatry. When we try to do it on our own without God, we're saying, God, my ability is more important than your work through me, and that's idolatry. Let's take it to another good thing for just a minute. Let's, let's talk about family, how family can slip into this plan B slot at times. And let me, let me start here, especially, and it's good to talk about this probably on a dedication Sunday. For those of you that still have children in your home, let me encourage you, your family must be the priority in your life. When you think about your time, when you think about what you have, when you think about your resources, I want to encourage you, your family must be the priority in your life. And maybe it's just because I'm getting a little older and we're kind of in this season of life where we're, we're coming to the end of, of the days of having a, a child at home and I'm looking back a little bit and I'm seeing the choices and the decisions that I've made and I can see times and places where I'm so thankful for what the, I made a priority and I can see times and places where painfully I look back and I wish I had had different priorities. I can tell you this, I have no regrets about any time when I said no to something to be able to make my family a priority. You know why? Mom, dad, you get one shot at this. Don't miss it. Make your family the priority in your life. But I think there's a difference between a priority and a foundation. Your family must be the priority in your life, but I can tell you, your family makes a lousy foundation for your life. I've known some people where their every decision is not just my family's a priority, but my family is my life, and at some point they put their family, plan B, in the place of plan A, and it actually does detriment to your whole family. If you build your faith on your family, your family will have a weak foundation. I watch people do this, where they make their family their everything, and then they say, okay, God, okay, faith, I'm gonna put you on top of family. And what happens is your family has a foundation that's not gonna last, and your faith really doesn't have a whole lot of impact, but if you build your family on your faith, your family will have a strong foundation. Amen. If you start with your faith, 
If you let God be first place, if the decisions you make as a family are based in your confidence and trust in God more than just what you think might be right for your family, you will find that your family will have a firm foundation. So make sure it's your faith and then your family and not your family and then your faith. Does that make sense? Okay, while I'm meddling, can I go one more? Let's see, we talked about money and we talked about um, our callings, we talked about our families. Let's talk about government for a minute, everybody's favorite subject. Look, for some of us, we, we get into a certain place where we can take people or policies or positions and we can either put so much confidence or so much of a lack of confidence into certain people or certain things that our hope begins to erode because we put so much confidence in plan B instead of plan A. Does that make sense? Look, I remember when I, when I became a pastor and people would say, well, what is what, your assemblies of God? What does your church believe? And I had to try to find a way to communicate it. I would often use a word that we are an evangelical church. Because that word used to mean this is what we believe about God in the Bible. Now, and largely in our culture, and especially outside of the church world, when I use the phrase, we are an evangelical church, it doesn't tell people what we believe about God. Mostly, it tells people what we believe about politics and what we're against and who they think we vote for. Right? Does that make sense? Like in the last four years? To the point where I, I'm looking for a new word. Like because I, I don't want to necessarily allow what I believe to be influenced by my politics. Understand this, and I think some of us need to be careful that we have this in the right order. Do you think theologically about your politics or do you think politically about your theology? It's a good question to ask. Because th this happens on, on, on both sides, left, right, conservative, liberal, the whole, the whole gamut. How do you think about things? And do you make the way you think about politics run through the filter of scripture or do you just use scripture to be able to back up what you believe politically? Because there's a big difference between the two. Why is that so important? Because I don't care on which side of the issues you're on, there are people out there right now who are very clearly saying things that are out of balance with God's word to the point that we have on both sides of the issues, we have people saying things are right that God's word says are wrong, and we have people saying things are wrong that God's word says are right. Right? And that's wrong. <laughs> Here, we'll get this again in a couple of weeks, but the law of man can never override the laws of God. I have to be careful that I never allow the laws of man to override the laws of God. What's it come down to in all of this? This plan A, plan B, I have to ask myself, when I come to a choice or a decision, is this putting something in my life before God? About seven years ago, our family was privileged to, um, to, to take a trip out to California and we, we took some extended time to be able to just kind of travel around. It was a place I'd never been. My kids had never been there. And so we went out and uh, just kind of took, took things in. So you're talking seven years ago or so. So at that point, technology and where things were, I was the only person in our family who had a smartphone and, and a phone with GPS capabilities. So we were largely using my phone to navigate. We had, a, we had to get a car when we were out there, and so it didn't have a map and stuff. And so by and large, we were using my phone to navigate, and I was the only one with that technology in the car, and I was a bad man. 
So we were driving basically across the state. We were going from, from Yosemite National Park, and we were heading back over to the coast, and, and we'd, we'd had a, a busy day in the park, and we were heading over, and we were going to go kind of about two-thirds of the way, and then we were going to stop and get a hotel place. I'd never been before. It was getting late. It was getting dark. I did not know where I was going, and all of a sudden, my phone went on the fritz. Like, it, it stopped, like, working right. It stopped calling. The GPS was all weird. Every time I'd try to get it to work, it would freeze up, and I'd restart it and all this kind of thing. And literally, it started overheating to the point that it was, like, too hot to touch. Just to wrap the story up, by the time we got, we got back to Toledo from California, I had to go in, and I had to change my phone in and get a new one because that phone was just toast, like literally, you know, there's something that wasn't right with it. So now here we are out in the middle of nowhere. It's dark. We're tired. We're hungry. We don't know where we're going. And I've got no way to navigate. And I've just kind of got to figure it out on my own. And I'm trying, you know, and I, and I, I know what city we're going to, but I don't know where in the city. I don't know where all this fits. I'm trying to, had an address, but I didn't have anything to like figure out where the address was. All of a sudden I, I turn down this road. I'm sure I'm going in the right direction. And we find ourselves like in some orchard somewhere. Like out in this big farmland, and my kids are all like, good driving, Dad, you know? <laughs> Finally, we get back to the highway, and I pull into this gas station, and I go in and ask the lady, you know, hey, this is where I'm going. Little did I know, like this was a, I didn't know this. I just booked it online with the chain website. You know, this is a brand new hotel. People don't even know. Well, I don't know what road that is. I don't know where this is. This lady behind the counter at the gas station, she had so much confidence. She was like, oh, yeah, it's over here. You do that. You turn there. Make sure you turn here. You do this. It'll get you right there. I go back, get in the car. She had no earthly idea. She sent us in the exact opposite direction, and the road where she told me to turn had me going the wrong way down a one-way. <laughs> sent my family on a special trip, right, as we're, you know, as we're, as we're doing this. Finally, we, we, we get someplace, we get directions, we find ourselves there, and it was this crazy journey. Here's what I wished. I'd wished that even when my GPS failed me, that I at least knew what direction I was going in. At least knew, where, where was I going? Look, the whole point of this series, as we talk about a GPS, is to give you insight, to give you tools that I know can help you so that when you have to make choices and decisions, you'll know what direction you're going. But let me tell you, there will be times when you'll wonder if these things, that were, this GPS that we're talking about, if they're gonna work, if they're gonna make a difference. Sometimes it'll be cloudy. Sometimes it'll be unclear. Sometimes you won't know exactly where you're going, and you might even feel like some of this that we're talking about today and next couple weeks is not gonna serve you all that well. Let me tell you this, even in those moments, you have to know that God is plan A in your life. You have to know that he's first place. That even if you're not clear on where you're headed, you know that he's the one that matters and there's nothing else that takes his place. If you'll just start there, it will make all the difference. But as soon as you put plan B in the place of plan A, I'm telling you, not only does it mess up your direction, but it's an idol in your life. Make sure that even if everything else is unclear to you, that God is plan A, which takes us to the second thing, number two, is what I would call the rest of the world idol. Number two, the rest of the world idol. Do you remember being a kid, going to your mom? Mom, can I have this? No. Mom, can I do this? No. Mom, can I go there? No. Not a whole lot of explanation, just no. And then what do you say? Mom, everybody's got that. Mom, everybody's going. Mom, 
The rest of the world has one of those things. I'm looking right at my mom right now. Mom, the rest of the world has one of those things. I am the only loser on the planet who does not have one of those things. Do you remember those days? You wanted to do it. Why'd you want to do it? Everybody else was doing it. It's what the rest of the world was doing. So why was it, Vera, that I couldn't do it? Right? You asked those questions. That's what Paul talks about next. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. Watch this. Because we can miss it if we don't know the background. He says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Now, he hones in on this idea of sexual immorality, which, which when we get back to Acts chapter 15, they did as well. And so we'll, we'll talk more detail about that topic later on in this series. But there's something bigger that's going on here. He's telling a story about something that happened in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 25, we hear that the Israelites, God's people, the Jewish people, have these neighbors called the Moabites. And some of the good-looking Moabite ladies get talking to some of the Jewish guys. And they say, hey, boy, why don't you come over for a party we're having? And the boys are like, okay. (laughs) And they get over there, and the party they're having over in Moab, it's a party. And actually, it's a celebration of their idols. And it's filled in part with sexual immorality. And the guys are there from Israel, and they're looking around and going, well, we don't think we're supposed to do this, but... Everybody else is doing it. Apparently, the rest of the world's doing it. So we'll do it. And when they did that, they took what they knew was right from God, and they set it over here, and they followed their own desires. They followed the things that they wanted to do. They pushed God off to the side, and they created these other things as their idols because, watch this, the rest of the world was doing it. And it's powerful for us to realize that what happened thousands of years ago still happens today, doesn't it? Call it peer pressure, call it culture, call it media, call it whatever you want to call it. It's it's the way the world goes. There's an interesting passage of scripture, 1 John 2, verse 15. Watch, Watch what John writes. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Weird way to say that for us when he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. It sounds like we're supposed to go hide in a cave and hate everybody and everything, right? It's not what he's saying when he says that. What he's saying is, do not love something so much that it takes the place of God in your life. So don't let the things of the world become where you put all your affections. And then he he says some more about it. He says, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father, that's God, is not in them. For everything in the world, and he lists these three big categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives, for, excuse me, lives forever. And sometimes we'll sit back from our place with, with God as first place in our lives, and we'll see the rest of the world. Oftentimes I think that, that idol shows up in culture and entertainment and, and the things that the, the, the culture around us tells us what to do. And we look and we see these things. He uses two interesting terms there. He talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And we really have a hard time defining, well, which is which and what's what, and commentators think all kinds of things. Here's the bottom line. We have been given by God healthy desires, haven't we? Yes or no? Yes. In fact, we have healthy desires. If we didn't have those desires, we would never eat and we would never reproduce. 
right? They're desires that God has given to us. But when they become unhealthy, when they consume us, when we go too far with them, that's when they become dangerous. And the Bible uses a word, it talks about lust. We always think of it just in a sexual sense, but lust is any unhealthy desire. Any unhealthy desire that you have that moves you in a direction, especially if that's a direction away from God, that's an, that's an unhealthy thing, and that's a lust. And scripture talks about this, and it can be all kinds of things. It can be power, it can be greed, it can be about money, it can be about sex, it can be alcohol or food or jealousy or bitterness. It can be all those things. And, and, and the author of 1 John, John, he writes and he says, look, you need to stay away from when your desires get unhealthy and take you in a direction that's too far. Do you remember this, that any good thing if it's too much, can become a bad thing, right? Okay, and then he says, and steer clear of the pride of life. What's that? Well, when you start to think more of yourself than you should, when you wanna self-promote in a way that's, that's unhealthy or maybe even untrue, when it's all about you and what other people think of you, when your reputation becomes more important than God's reputation, that becomes the pride of life. And, and, and the, the problem is that everywhere we look in the world around us, these things are what we're pushed and driven towards. If it feels good, do it. If you want it, you can have it. If you don't promote yourself, nobody's gonna promote you. Like these are all the things that are pushed in our society and the realization we have to come to is this, that just because the rest of the world is doing it does not mean that I should be. My allegiance should be to God because when what's inside of me becomes unhealthy, when my desires get too far a hold of me, in those times, it's destructive and I don't wanna pay the cost of what's gonna be found there. That just uh, earlier this month, there was a group of technicians that showed up to repair an ATM machine. You know the things you go put your card in, money comes out? Went to fix an ATM machine at a bank at a city in the, in the country of India, the nation of India. Hadn't been working for a while, and so they came to fix it. Wasn't functioning right. And so when they opened it up and looked inside, they saw that all the money inside had been shredded. Like it, was like it had been chewed up. And then we started investigating, they realized there was a dead rat inside of there. Somehow a rat had crawled in some holes that were meant for wires, got inside of there, couldn't get out, and started eating the money. Crazy story. How much? When they counted up all those Indian rupees, it was close to $18,000 that that rat had eaten inside. What's your rat? What's the, what's the desire in you that if you're not careful can be so hungry and unhealthy that it's gonna cost you way more than you ever imagined? Be careful what the desires are inside of you no matter what the rest of the world is doing. Paul writes these stories because he wants to remind them of some really important things. We have the plan B idol. We have the rest of the world idol. But let's get right down to it. Here's idol number three. It's what we'll call the what about me idol. Number three is what we would call the what about me idol. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse nine. Here's how Paul uh, wraps up the last two stories. He says, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. <laughs> and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. 
I'll let you go back and read the stories if you want to. They're in Numbers chapter 21, and then the second one's in number chapter 14. Here's the basis of the story. The Israelites are in the wilderness. They're waiting um, because they can't get into the promised land, and so they're out there, and they're, 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 they're beginning to be ticked off. They're beginning to be impatient. They're beginning to be upset, and they start complaining to Moses and Aaron, what about us? We're not happy. We don't like it here. This isn't right. This isn't good. Any of this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> they start doing this, and here's what it comes down to. But what about me is what they're saying. And when you make life all about you instead of making it all about God, let's just be honest. That's idolatry. What's an idol? Anything that gets in the way or in the place of God and know this, when I'm full of myself, I leave no room to be full of God. When I'm full of myself, I leave no room to be full of God. Now look, we could unpack this in a lot of different ways. Let me just take a, a couple of minutes and talk about one just very thin slice, one very specific area where this what about me thing can show up in your life, maybe even in the life of your family. We, we live not just in our own little worlds, but we live now in an online world, don't we? And what we read online, what we consume online in particular, how social media affects our lives is a drastic thing. Let me, let me just take a minute and, and be honest here. Help me with this. We're gonna take a little poll. Raise your hand if this applies to you. If, if for at least three minutes, sometime since last Sunday, you've spent some time in some form of social media, raise your hand. Yeah, that's, that's primarily most of us, if not almost all of us, that are somehow engaged in this online world. So this is a real world that we need to think about because if there's any place where it's easy for us to stop and think practically in our lives that this what about me idol can creep in, it's true that it can happen in social media. True or false, right? I mean, we see this. So what, what do we do with this? Here's what I wanna give you just super quick. Can I give you things to consider before you click? If it's dangerous to go into that world that's all about you and sometimes that it's just you, here's some things to consider before you click. Gonna sound an awful lot like our GPS. Here's the first one. Ask yourself the question, is this glorifying to God? That link I'm about to click, that thing I'm about to share, that post I'm about to make, is it glorifying to God? Does it represent God well? The next time you're about to put something out there on, on, on Facebook or Instagram, ask this question, would God post this? <laughs> would he put this on his page? Would this show up in his feed? Is this glorifying to God? Second thing, does this encourage others? What I'm about to put out there what I'm about to say, and it's so dangerous because I feel like I'm alone in my living room. I'm actually posting something that thousands and thousands of people have the potential to see, right? Does this encourage others? Is it beneficial to somebody else or is it discouraging? Is it helpful or is it not? Have you noticed that the online world these days is rarely civil? <laughs> like things can heat up so quick. My encouragement to you, don't be a Twitter terrorist. Be wise about what you post. And please, 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 did you notice that in one of these stories, Paul hones right in the last one in 1 Corinthians 10 we looked at, and he says, look, be careful about grumbling. Grumbling is a dangerous thing. It's, it's a powerful thing. And there's no place easier to grumble than online, right? I mean, you can just 
put your grief out there, put your, your, your dirt out there, put your problems or somebody else's out there, and you can start to grumble about those things very easily. Realize this, when you grumble online, does that have the power to affect how other people view you? Yes? And when you grumble online and they know you're a follower of Jesus Christ, does it have the power to affect how other people think about God? And know this, this is the one you miss so often. When you grumble online, it has the power to affect you. Like it's toxic. It can make you sick. It can affect your heart. Be careful what you post. Grumbling is a deadly poison, which leads me to the last one. You, you ask, does this glorify God? Does this encourage others? And the last one easily, is this, is this good for me? If I click on this link, does that benefit me? If I post this, how does it affect my testimony? How much is my time online affecting me? Maybe even ask the question, how much time am I spending online? Interesting article just this week in the New York Times about um, the way that our screens affect us. It talks about a study that was done at the University of Texas that shows that just the presence of someone's cell phone diminishes their cognitive ability because they, can be dis they become distracted by what might be there, even if it's not on or in their possession. It's a distraction. The phrase they use, which I think is powerful, screens are vampires. It can drain the life right out of us. I'm not saying it's bad. Don't go home and smash yours. It's powerful. God is using technology. Almost every week I meet somebody who says that they were introduced to Calvary and oftentimes introduced to Jesus Christ either through what Calvary does online or on television. Like God uses those things. But the enemy would like to use it in your life as well. And parents, the enemy would like to use it in the life of your kids. So can I just park here for just a minute? If you, if you still have children at home, Make sure you're deliberate and you think about this, okay? There's a, there's a book, a new book called The TechWise Family by a guy named Andy Crouch. A lot of helpful research there. The TechWise Family. He partnered with Barna Research Group and they did, they did a survey. Listen to this question and, and, and think about this because I want your answer on it. They asked, they asked people, do you believe that raising kids today is more complicated than it was when you were a kid? Anybody? 78% of people said it's more complicated today than it was when they were children. Why, they asked them. 65% of those people said that the top thing on the list was that technology and social media make it difficult to raise kids today. Why, they asked them. They said you gotta balance physical activity with online screen activity. You have to limit time and use of technology. You've gotta filter content. You've gotta worry about what your kids are being exposed to by their friends. How do you have family time without technology? How do you monitor social media? What do you do about online bullying? Any parents stressed out? Right, it's all there. So what do you do? We're, we're gonna, on August 22nd and 29th, those are two Wednesday nights. I know it's about seven weeks away. But on August 22nd and 29th, we're gonna offer on Wednesday nights a, a seminar, those two weeks, on how to parent effectively. And parents and grandparents strongly encourage you to come and be a part of this. Some of us need it just for ourselves. How do we parent effectively our children, whether they're little or whether they're teenagers, in a social media world. Pastor Lindsay's been doing research. She's gonna walk us through these things. It's, it's gonna be really effective. Let me give you just three short thoughts on this whole idea. Here's the first one. Parents, be intentional. Like, don't let this thing into your house or into your kids' hands and lives without being intentional about it. 
One of the best things that I read is that think about how you will, and consider this, how you'll stair-step technology. Especially if, you, if you've got little kids at home, think about this. How do you introduce technology to them and give them freedom? Think about this. When our kids were little, like when they were learning to crawl and walk, we used to lock our kitchen cupboards with these, you know, those plastic things so that they couldn't get in. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Because there were things in there that could hurt them. So we'd let them move around, but we restricted what they could get to. Then, when they got old enough to start going bowling, when we would go bowling, we'd, put those bump, we'd get those bumpers in, you know what I mean? That when they'd, they'd bowl, we'd keep the ball in the lanes because we wanted to keep them out of the gutter. <laughs> See where I'm going with this? When I'm driving with my kids, I always feel a little bit better when there's guardrails because <laughs> I know it protects us. Look, as your children are developing, think about what you release and how you allow them to interact with technology. It may be that at first you gotta keep the cabinets locked up. And then you give them a little bit of freedom but make sure you're keeping them out of the gutter. And then as they continue to grow, make sure there's guardrails that are up and they know what's there and, and you know what's there. And then eventually as they grow, you get to a certain point where you're able to entrust them that it's less like guardrails and more like the banks of a river that they're allowed to flow, but they know what the limits are as, as their life continues to go. Look, parents, be intentional, and can I challenge you, be present. Make sure you know what your kids are doing online. And, and I, I kinda get a kick out of this, but if your kids are involved and join a social media platform, you get involved and join that same social media platform. It's the only way you're gonna know what's going on, and man, does it irritate your kids. <laughs> be present. If I'm gonna be a good dad, I'm not gonna drop my kids off someplace with a bunch of people I don't know and wonder if they're shady or not. I wouldn't be a good dad if I did that. You wouldn't do it in the real world, don't do it in the online world. Last thought, mom and dad, be a parent. In, in, in doing what you're doing, be the parent. Ask questions, don't just be a friend. Make sure they know where the guidelines are and make sure you stick to them. And when there need to be consequences, make sure there's consequences, even if the consequences have consequences. Which takes me to you, mom and dad, grown-ups. What are your boundaries in the online world? Like, are you accountable anywhere to anybody? Do people know what you're doing? Are there people, especially in your social media world, that if you post something that either makes you look foolish or makes you look bad or it's inappropriate, you have people in your world who can come to you and call a foul? They can say, hey, look, that might not be right. Is there anyone in your world with an online whistle that they can blow and call a foul? I hope you have somebody, if not, Get somebody, I'm thankful for the people that have a whistle in my life. They can tell me when, when I'm doing things and going places I shouldn't, why? Because so quickly it becomes all about me and my life and know this, when I'm full of myself, I leave no room to be full of God. Okay, true confession. This hasn't been a very fun sermon. <laughs> right, we've talked about idols. We talked about the plan A idol, we talked about the rest of the world idol, we talked about the what about me idol. Why is this so important? You're probably sitting there wondering, why is this so important? Man, am I glad you asked. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul tells four stories, then he says this. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 
If before you walked in here today, somebody had said, yeah, the sermon's about idols, you probably would have said, well, I'm not an idolater. I don't know if I need to hear that. But I can tell you, the more I dug into these three idols, the, the less I liked what I saw in my life in Samaria's. Look, this matters. And Paul says, be careful if you think you're standing, lest you fall. The year was 1846. His name was Ignaz Semmelweis. He was a doctor at a general hospital in Vienna, Austria. Primarily, he worked in the maternity ward where he was delivering babies. There was something called childbed fever that had become far too uh, familiar in their maternity ward to the point that one in every 10 mothers was getting this childbed fever and almost always they died. Their mortality rate that if you went there to give a baby birth, there was a one in 10 chance that you would die. Those aren't good odds, are they? And this bothered Semmelweis. He was like, we gotta do something about this. And he did all kinds of research. He was trying to tie in what was happening, what was different, when did this happen, to the point that the, the, the fact that he was watching these mothers die was crushing him. And he didn't know what to do, and he had to get a break. And so he went away to Venice on a trip and took some time. Two things happened while he was gone. This is interesting. One thing that happened was a colleague of his died of this, a, a male doctor died of this same thing that the mothers were dying of. The second thing that happened was while he was gone, the mortality rate went down. It got better in his absence. He's like, this is weird. What's going on here? You gotta remember this was 1846. They had no germ theory at that time. Science hadn't quite worked itself out to that place. What was interesting was this hospital in Vienna was a teaching hospital. So most of the time what he was doing was he was delivering babies. But oftentimes when there weren't babies to be delivered, then he and his colleagues would go down to the morgue and perform autopsies and teach students. And so he would be in the morgue and he would do an autopsy on a corpse and then somebody would say, hey, Mrs. Jones has given birth and he would turn and he would go right up there and guess what he wouldn't wash? Literally, he was carrying death on his hands right to the place of new life. Now, do you wonder why they were getting sick? Over time, Semmelweis figured this out, and he said, look, everybody that works here in my department, here's what I want you to do. Before you touch one of these mothers, I want you to make sure that you wash your hands. It was a solution of soap and chlorine that they used. Guess what happened? The death rate went way down, way fast dramatically because they'd realized that what was killing them was right on the hands that were intended to give them life. That they were taking things that they were holding on to that they were unaware were dead and as a result, it was killing other people. Do you know what an idol is? It's a false god and it's dead. It isn't alive, it's not real. And the reason I stress this today is because some of us, whether it's plan B or the rest of the world or just what about me, we're holding on to things that are dead and we're trying to take them into places in our life that we want to see live and as a result, we're just dying on the inside. When what if we would release those idols and we would hold on to the only source of life that's truly Jesus Christ? My hope is that today as we've talked about these idols, you would get rid of those things that are dead gods in your life and hold on to the one true God. So Father, we come to you today. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word that challenges us and gives us hope. 
God, for some of us, we've let things that are good become too much to the point that they're bad. And we've let plan B push out plan A. God, may you be first place in our lives today. Lord, some of us have let what the rest of the world is doing dictate what we're doing, and you've called us today to look out for that rat, to look out for that desire that could lead us to a place of destruction. Father, would you help us to make you first place, no matter what the rest of the world's doing? Lord, we're all selfish. And there's these times when we're, when we're focused inside, not just on the online world, but we find ourselves in our own little world. Father, would you help me to live in a way, help us to live in a way where it's not all about me, but Jesus, where it's all about you. Lord, just like John wrote to the church he loved, God, would you help us to stay away from idols? Father, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Lord, would you send us out with your special favor, with your wonderful peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.